Welcome back to Arts Across NC, a podcast by and about the North Carolina Arts Council. I'm your host, Sandra Davidson. I am back today with a brand new episode of the show because we're celebrating a very special anniversary at the Arts Council. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the official induction of Jackie Shelton Green as North Carolina's ninth Poet Laureate and our state's first African-American Poet Laureate. Born and raised in Eflin, North Carolina, Jackie's been active in our state's literary and teaching community for more than 40 years. She's authored eight books of poetry, co-edited two anthologies of poetry, and written a play. And Jackie's developed a reputation as someone who wants to take the literary arts to underserved communities. She's worked with the incarcerated, the homeless, and the chronically and mentally ill. And when Governor Roy Cooper asked her to be North Carolina's Poet Laureate, she knew she wanted to take that ethos of service to a new level. And she has. Jackie's traveled thousands of miles and made hundreds of appearances at libraries, schools, and literary festivals as North Carolina's Poet Laureate. And she's met countless North Carolinians across the state. Today, Jackie joins me on Arts Across NC to reflect on her tenure thus far, and her conversation begins with the weather drama surrounding her formal induction. At risk of using a literary cliche, the third time's a charm, and Jackie knows a thing or two about that. So the very first date that the governor was available, because there were many, many proposed dates to him, and we kept thinking we had a date, and then his calendar wouldn't align up with my calendar. Then we got a September date, and we all were protecting that date, and the big hurricane came. And of course, I remember it was a state of emergency across the state. And I was looking at the TV thinking, there's no way I'm going to get an inaugurate it. He just declared a state of emergency. <laughs> and we moved on and we found a December date that worked for the governor and worked for me. And we were all so happy about that date. And then there was a horrible s- storm. Uh, ice and snow. I think there were 12 inches of snow in Durham. That's right. 12 inches of snow. In early December. That's right. So, you know, I, my friends and relatives are beginning to kid me about it and, you know, and sending me these snide emails about, you know, the weather not cooperating and uh, that I should have a talk with the weatherman (laughs) or, you know, funny little things. But we finally had this wonderful opportunity to actually, uh, proceed uh, in February. It was right before Valentine's Day, I remember. What do you remember about that day? It was like a wedding. It felt like a wedding. And what I remember was the energy in the room. That the energy in the room was so electric with joy. And it was a joy that was overwhelming because... It was about me, and I, how can I say this? I don't know when I've had that kind of joy about me, except for the birth of my children. Um, That level of, of happiness for one person in the room, that everyone that came, came from me. And people came from all over. People came from all over, my friends. My godson surprised me and was there from New York, and uh, a friend that, uh, a woman from Nigeria who I'd met in prep school, 
you know, I'm standing up there and she and her husband are like walking in and I'm like, oh my God, it's EJ. Uh, people came from everywhere, from all across the state, from out of state. My family flew in from various places and it was tremendous. You know, there was so much going on with me. I was thinking about my, my oldest daughter and how happy she would have been and and she is the real goofball in our family and witty and full of jokes and funny and how she would have been just orchestrating the whole weekend and it was a joyous bitter you know bittersweet that she wasn't there but very sweet that my 103 year old mom was going to be able to witness this day and to hold that space with me um so yeah, I will say on the back end at the Arts Council, you were definitely celebrity number one that day, but your mom was celebrity number two. Yeah, yeah, and she, um, I think she was a little overwhelmed too, but she would never show it. Mm-hmm. I, but I think inside she was kind of overwhelmed. Um, but it was a wonderful day for me to think about what it really means to to be inside of community and what community looks like across all kinds of imaginary and real boundaries. Um, for me, it was it was humbling to think about the work that I have attempted to do in the state of North Carolina for so many years, for over 40-some years, that actually someone was saying, good work. You know, someone was saying, and here, let us help you do more. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is sort of what this looks like and feels like. So you do an amazing job of narrating your whereabouts and your travels on social media, and you really chronicle the good, the bad, and the challenging, mm-hmm. I would say. So I'd love for you to start by telling me about some of your favorite moments as poet laureate during your tenure so far oh there have been there have been many perhaps the most gratifying is when I encounter african-american women and other women of color in places that I've never been before who walk up to me with tears in her eyes thanking me for being in this space for holding the space in the way that I hold the space in a way that says to young women, to young girls, there is nothing magical, unique, or extraordinarily unusual about women of color being in these spaces. I had an experience in New Bern where a woman, group of African-American women, walked into a room, I was standing in the front of the room, and I saw them when they came to the room, and they were, they were like little kids. And I could hear them like, oh, there she is. Oh, my God, there she is. And it was such a big deal to them. And when I experienced that with it, I got a little nervous. Because there is an expectation of greatness, significance. But for me, it is an expectation. And for me, myself, it is a true dedication of what it means to be responsible. To be responsible that, yes, I'm the poet laureate of North Carolina, but I know that there are so many shoulders that I'm riding on, not, not only the ancestors, but I'm riding on the, 
the shoulders of these young young children because I believe that what we teach them, what we give to them, what we're offering to them right now is going to make a difference for how we reimagine a world that we all want to live in. So my responsibility is to show up in that clarity of we can build that world. So when I've encountered all kinds of women who are proud that as a woman I'm holding this post, especially as a black woman, when elderly black women tell me how proud they are of me. And, you know, and, and when I'm sitting in spaces where I know that people like me have not sat, not that I'm so honored to be the only one there, but that I have crossed a boundary, that I have, you know, that I have broken a tradition by being inside of that room. So there have been many, many wonderful experiences. Uh, as you know, Biscuitville reached out to me last year. And that was kind of, I was like, Biscuitville? Huh. Biscuitville <laughs> sends me an email, and the invitation is that they would like to profile me on their annual, they do this every year, their traditional Black History Month commemoration mm-hmm. bookmark, which is really a sausage biscuit coupon. <laughs> and they did this beautiful, you know, prototype. They lifted some bio, some biographical material and a photograph. And on the flip side is a little bio of Nina Simone and a photograph of Nina Simone. Also a North Carolinian. Also our North Carolina soul queen, mm-hmm. our jazz ballad queen. And I accept it. You know, the bookmark goes out and then I get a phone call. Hey, Miss Shelton Green, we were thinking, what if you read some poetry at Biscuitville? And I thought, poetry reading at Biscuitville. Might be a first as well. And I was like, okay, how about eight o'clock on a Monday morning? <laughs> so I go to Biscuitville in Greensboro, the, the site they'd invited me to. And the parking lot is packed. I mean, as in... We can't find a parking space. We're there, it's like 7.45, 7.35. There are four camera camera vans, TV vans, and I'm thinking, surely these TV cameras aren't here for me. Like, this is getting to be a little too weird. I walk in the door, and I'm, I almost burst into tears because the entire Biscuitville staff is standing there in their white uniforms, and they formed a receiving line. And one by one, some of the women are crying. They're welcoming me to their Biscuitville. The manager is there. You know, he's very, very gracious. And we're so happy you're here. And, you know, the the head biscuit man comes out. That is so cool. And they're like, we're, you know, thank you for coming, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, where's my biscuit? And <laughs> I need my biscuit. And, and yeah, so the chef is like, I'm making it myself. And, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I have this fantasy. I've always wanted to go in that little, that little glass space where the guy's in there making the biscuits. <laughs> so they're like, we can arrange that. But it was, it was a very sweet moment. Uh, the room was packed full of people. Many people were there intentionally. They'd read about it in the paper or however they marketed it. They knew I was going to be there. They'd come. They'd come with books for me to autograph. And then there are the people coming in just 
wanting a biscuit and hey, what's going on? And they're coming over to say, oh, what a what a special treat. Didn't expect to meet the poet laureate at Biscuitville this morning. It was really, really wonderful. Fast forward, they ask if I can come the next Monday. <laughs> same time, same place. Same gig. <laughs> there are more cameras. You know, city council representatives are showing up for photo ops with the poet laureate. And while I'm there, after the reading, I'm standing around and four men walk in with the Make America Great Caps on again. Mm -hmm. And uh, they get their food, they sit down, and uh, I'm standing in their line of vision. So they're sitting there, they open their food, they, they look, one guy picks up the coupon and he looks at it and he looks back at me, then he looks at it again, then he looks at back at me then he says something to the other three guys and now they're all looking at me so i'm i'm standing near the door they finished their breakfast they are leaving the restaurant and they walk up to me and the first guy says to me is this you and i went yep that's me and the other guy says that is so cool i was like yeah it is cool isn't it third guy where are you from? And I'm thinking, I'm not telling you where I'm from. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm just a little old country girl. And the first guy says, oh, like us. I said, yeah, like us. So they're standing there, and they were just like, just shaking their heads. And this, one of the guys says, well, my wife is going to be so jealous. She's going to be so jealous because she didn't get to meet you this morning. This other guy pulls out a whole stack of the coupons out of his back pocket. And he says, I'm going to take these to my young in school for Black History Month. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, you do that. And first guy, who's really serious, says, I just love it when good things happen to ordinary people like us. And I said, yeah, it's really cool when good things happen to ordinary people like us. Emphasis on mm -hmm. us. You know, so the guy, you know, goes back to, yeah, man, my wife's going to be so upset that we got to meet the poet Lars. So this other guy says, the guy with the bookmarks, well, nobody's going to believe us even if we tell them we met the poet Lars of North Carolina at Biscuitville. And he said, unless she takes a selfie with us. <laughs> so I thought about it. And I said, okay. Almost in unison, they take off their caps. They place them on the bench behind us. You know, they draw us in close. They hug me, and we take a photograph. They pick up their caps, and they leave. And it was, it was the most precious moment for me. They crossed a boundary. They stepped outside of whatever the red hats mean to speak to me. They initiated the conversation. My responsibility is how I treat them back as human beings. My responsibility is not to respond to what they're wearing, because I think we all have been in situations where someone walks in a room, looks at us, and makes up their own narrative about us mm -hmm. because of what we're wearing or our physical description. People make up their own narratives about us. And sometimes people are in positions of power where even when they find out the truth about who we really are, they can make their narratives be the truth. So 
my responsibility in this scenario was to be present to the kindness and generosity of spirit that was being extended to me and that I should expend nothing, extend nothing less than kindness back. That was a moment of what it means to be a truth teller, what it really means to be a truth teller, to stand up in truth uh, and to never know how art is going to create these fabulous moments. Mm-hmm. That was a fabulous moment for me. Fabulous because I'm always talking about how poetry, how any any form of art is that bridge that we can step on and all of our otherness and find our commonalities. And I realized that the commonality in that moment was when I said, I'm just a little old country girl. Mm-hmm. And that is true. That is true. Now, they don't know anything else beyond that. But that was enough. And sometimes we have to let things be the enough that creates a possibility. Mm-hmm. And also for me, it's about standing up and walking your talk. If I believe that we can build community across boundaries, if I can believe that kindness and generosity and goodness is inside of all of us, that we are a wounded collective community right now, and when I say community, national community, but there are these little seams that we all find ourselves in, and it's really about how we decide to be intentional inside of that scene. I would love for you to describe what the last 18 months has been like for you in terms of what type of scenes that you found yourself in? Because I know this was a Biscuitville-specific one, but you have done... How many events do you think you've done as Poet Laureate? when I had to make a report, the report was from June... No, from August 2018 to June 2019. I counted them. I think it was 184 presentations. And that did not include around 60 private invitations that I could not list in that report private meaning your your book club your girlfriend's book club invited me to come or a private luncheon that was not open to the public or um last week i was the guest speaker at a friends of a literary a literacy association there it was a donor appreciation evening in a private home it was not public Mm -hmm. but I did read poetry and talked about the importance of of literacy uh I can't count those okay so nuts and bolts how did you also in that report have to report how many miles that you've you've driven oh I think I don't know but I have that we have it recorded what do you think it is oh I don't know my my husband takes care of the mileage He, he (laughs) he keeps up with all of that but yeah I um I have intentionally kept up with every expense. I mean, I, we, yeah. I, I think people, I want people to know how much well, you're I can on get the that road. Figure. I really do think about it a lot. Cause I, I know yeah. I look at the calendar that we maintain and then I, you know, see your updates mm-hmm. on social media and it's like you're in 10 places at once sometimes. It is true. I mean, sometimes, um, 
And I'll give you an example. I'm going to Asheville in March. I'll be there for two weeks as the write-in residence in the Asheville Public Schools. I'm going to be in, I think, elementary school, middle school, high school. I'm also going to be doing some community-based work that's outside of that. I have been known on my calendar to be in Asheville on Friday, Saturday, Monday, and to be in Wilmington on Wednesday. Okay, so how do you, does that, like, how, what are your rituals for staying grounded? And because, you know, you, every time I've been around you, you are fully present in this space. And I think that that takes a lot of intentionality. And I wonder what your rituals for grounding yourself in staying 100% in. First of all, I never grew up wanting to be the poet laureate. Let's just put that out there. In all of my years of doing the work that I've done, the poet laureate ship has never like been on my radar as anything as that I aspire to. I'm very, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but it's not anything I aspire to do or to be. However, in this acceptance of becoming the poet laureate, I knew what I wanted it to look like. I wanted to be in those places where I'm walking up to somebody and they're going, what did that lady say? What is a poet laureate? She said, you're the poet laureate. I have no idea what that means. I've never heard of the poet laureate. Are there other people like you? Who are you? What do you do? How do you become a poet laureate? That's where I want to be. People who not only don't know what the poet laureate ship is, but don't give one flip because they're trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. Because their life, their entire life is governed by Am I going to be able to pay the bills this month? Is there enough food? Are my public benefits going to disappear? That's my audience as much as all of the many college, university students that I'm happy to be in front of. Because those (laughs) people need poetry. Why? They need poetry because, one, what I have found with with working with working class audiences uh, and disenfranchised or audiences when I say audiences, communities that are just entire counties that are impoverished and low wealth where the arts is so marginalized. First of all, they don't believe that their stories matter. They help marginalize themselves because they don't have the self-confidence. No one has ever asked them to tell their stories. Once they understand how much their voices matter from a creative point of view, those same people start understanding how to maybe advocate for themselves at the local city council meeting. So all of my life, I've not been the writer in residence at thousands of places, maybe hundreds of places, but I have been the community economic development specialist for legal services. I have been a 4-H nutrition counselor, helping people in their communities have better lives. As the writer, the two are not inseparable for me. For me, poetry is a different kind of food. It's a different kind of medicine. It's a different kind of nourishment. And when I can say to somebody, well, you know, what you just said to me is poetry. You just gave me this litany of how you had to go to your daughter's school. and She has special needs and how you had to advocate for her. That's a beautiful story you just told me. You see it as it's problematic that you even have to do that. But think about the power that your daughter has a mother who has a voice. 
So I engage people where they are. And I have experiences, years of experiences of working with people who work in factories and they come during their lunchtime for 30 minute poetry writing because that's what they decide they need. Not what I've decided they need, but what they've decided they need. So yes, I want to be with those audiences that people don't really think about or know about. You know, the the student writer who's in a detention center, you know, that's an audience that, that I mm-hmm. love. You told me a beautiful story about one of those. The Yeah, being up in Silva. Yes. Another beautiful story of being up, of being invited to City Lights Bookstore in Silva. And I was doing a poetry reading on a Wednesday night, but I arrived in town on Tuesday and they wrote me and said, well, uh, what do you want to do? Because we would love to host something for you at the store. We were thinking maybe you could meet with a group of high school students. I said, that would be great. Well, we have two choices. Uh, you can meet with a group of alternative students or you can meet with an academically gifted mm-hmm. master's English class. I said, I'll, I'll take the alternatives, kids. And they said, well, we were hoping so. In walks about 11 big strapping white mountain men. And I'm thinking, hmm, wonder how this is going to go. The stories that these young men shared with me, the truths that they were willing to speak to me, were unbelievable. The trust that happened in that room inside of 45 minutes. Um, I was trying not to just cry. I wanted to just pack them all up and take them, bring them home with me. Young men who were literally trying to stay alive. These kids were less than 20 years old. I think one was 19 because he'd repeat it. These were kids who'd been arrested. The teacher is out in the hallway just crying her eyes out for my husband. And she's telling him, oh my God, I don't know what she's done to them. Um, These are the kids the principal and I were like, have we made a mistake? They live in the principal's office. They're very disruptive. They're disrespectful. And we had one of the most enduring, impactive, wonderful conversations about about how poetry changes lives, how there are stories to me about how poetry is changing their lives on a daily basis. They wrote, they wrote wonderful narratives and poems. They'd read my poems. They had very, very thoughtful uh, questions about my poems. They went under my poems and found the connection to me, to me as a human being. They weren't looking at a 66-year-old African-American woman who's a poet laureate of North Carolina, whose, whose bio is all that. It was how I met them as the oldest sister in the room, mm-hmm. as someone who cared about them, who wanted to hear their stories, who listened, who did not question. I just listened. When a young man in the room, the 19-year-old, tells me, I want to show you something. And he pulls out about 20 or more journals out of his backpack, big journals. And he said, this is what keeps me alive. He said, I, he said my girlfriend and her two children were murdered in a uh, gang-related activity. He said, I've seen two friends kill themselves because they were bullied really, really bad. He said, I almost myself 
killed myself last year because of bullying in my school. He said, poetry is what saved my life. I started writing. And he said, it saved me. This is what keeps me safe. This is what keeps my mind from roaming. This is what validates me. This is what gives me hope. I asked them to write a poem about reimagining a safer, more loving, more peaceful world that they would want to construct if they had the power to do that. And their writing was, was powerful. So at the core of marginalized people who, they, who feel they've been thrown away, or they're not seen, they're not heard, they're not worthy to be heard. This is what it's all about. This That's is, what fuels Yeah, this fuels is the you. medicine. Creativity is medicine. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm just carrying a spoon. I mean, sometimes I just feel like that's my job, is to show up and help people realize the medicine resides in them. It's not me. I'm not bringing the medicine to them. They already have the medicine. Let me help you pour the bottle. Let me help you hold it. Let me help you lift it up. Let me help you say that you are worthy of the partaking of the medicine, because that's where the magic is. It's inside of us. So I know that you know that it is the medicine Mm -hmm. and that you've seen people respond to the medicine. I wonder if there's anything in during your time where you have really, really provided this type of service to people across North Carolina that you've been surprised or you've learned something about poetry? Well, I've learned that it's even more powerful than I've ever imagined it to be, number one, and that people are hungry, not just a marginalized community I just talked about, but in general. People are hungry. People are looking for ways to, and I I keep saying reimagine, but to reimagine what's not happening to us right now as a culture, what's not happening when we're finding ourselves, people polarizing themselves more and more. Also, what has been interesting to me is the people who don't, who could care less that I'm the poet laureate of North Carolina in a political way, who remind me in very subtle, passive aggressive ways, you may be the first African-American poet laureate, we could care less, it means nothing to us. Let us show you what this looks like to us as they disrespect me. So there's that. You know, there are things that I have encountered that I know none of my predecessors would ever have had to experience or witnessed. That as my, as my grandmother would have said, they wouldn't even have fixed their mouths to say some of the things they've said to me. The good news is that that's not my stuff. And I'm not going to carry it or hold it. You know, it's reflective of who we are nationally. It's reflective of fear. It's reflective of people who still hold these, whatever their ideas are about people who are not like them. You know, to us, you're just, just no black woman. You're nobody else. And I'll give you an example. I was invited uh, last two weeks ago, well, one Saturday ago, I'm in another city, did the poetry reading 
someone asked me your same question. Tell us about a time that was really significant to you. I told the story about the Biscuitville and the, mm-hmm. the men in the hats. So after I tell the story, this man stands up. Well, first of all, he's on the front row and his body language, he, he's a long, tall man. He is slouched down in the chair. So his whole body is taking up like space. Like he's like, his whole body is extended out into the room. It was a very, it was a statement. And he slouched down in the chair. So he says, well, I have a question. He doesn't, you know, oh, that's right. He doesn't bother to sit up or stand up. Everybody else comes to the microphone, asks a question. Well, I find your poetry very bitter. I find you a very bitter person. And um, I don't see any hope. You don't give us any hope. So the room, you could feel people looking at him. I hear people going, then you can't hear, dude. I mean, that's I, I can hear the little chatter chatter amongst people and I said well I said it's interesting that you have deemed the word bitter I said I'm a truth teller and you have my permission to receive that truth in in any lens you'd like to process it because that belongs to you I said see I know I'm not bitter I am a truth teller and if you didn't hear the hope in the story I just told about the guys in the red hats that say, make America great again. If you didn't hear the hope that we stood there just as citizens having a conversation, I said, the fact that you can even ask me this question, well, no, it's not a question, you're telling me who I am. I said, the fact that you can even do this in this space is because of art because it's a safe space for both of us to have this conversation. I said, because truth be told, if I walked across the coffee, to the coffee shop, across the street, you would not even come in and have a conversation with me. You're bold enough to say this here and to exert your sense of power and your sense of you're gonna make, you, you, somehow you're thinking you're gonna make this stick because you're in a safe space that I've created for you. Because if you thought I was going to push back, I said, I have nothing to defend. You want to hold on to bitterness? Go right ahead. I'm going to hold on to what I do. And what I do is build community. What I do is show up and tell the truth. Now, if you don't find yourself inside of any of my truths, then you don't find yourself in any of my truths. But it's my truth. And the bottom line is he had no, he didn't know how to respond. I really think that he wanted to solicit a different response from me. Mm -hmm. And it was, and and what was amazing in that moment was the validation. When I finished, people stood up and gave and and clapped, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and one woman, I mean, there was a woman behind him who said, have you heard anything she said today at all about the power of poetry? And we're here witnessing the power of story and how she is using story as a vehicle and navigating the state with just helping people digging out their stories. Because what I, I started out with saying that the more that we share our stories, the more we tell our stories to each other, the more we find ourselves 
over and over again inside of each other's stories. Exactly. What's really interesting about the time that we're in right now in 2020 is that it is an election year and we live in an era, as you've mentioned, where our civic identities are polarized and there are many things pushing us in that direction. And what you are doing is the opposite of that. And as you mentioned, you've, you, you've been all the way to the furthest, most Western part of North Carolina. You've been all the way out to the easternmost mm-hmm. part of North Carolina and everything North-South, too. I wonder what your tenure as Poet Laureate has taught you about who North Carolinians are as a people. It's a wonderful question because I have I have been afforded the deepest of generosities and kindnesses. And I'm in a lot of, of communities that don't look like me. I'm in a lot of rooms giving poetry readings where there are no people of color anywhere. And the generosities that are extended, the, the sincerity of generosity, the pleasantries, not, not false, um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not just people being artificial. Platitudes. Not false platitudes, but women who've called me and said, I don't care what it takes or when you can come, if, if, even if it's next year, you have to come to our community. We need you to come speak to our community. I heard you speak on NPR. My, my sister lives so-and-so. She heard you at her university. You have to get this woman to come. It is that conversation that feeds me. It's that conversation that gives me the hope that when I am experiencing uh, the grittier experiences that are in my eye, that I'm like rubbing my eye thinking, so what is this about? All of the other experiences far outnumber that crap, you know? And North Carolina is a wonderful state to live in. People of North Carolina are just trying to make their way. I, I, and I believe that. Um, even when I thought of, think about communities where like really bad things have happened and communities just want, you know, for the betterment, for the economic betterment of the community, can we just forget about this and get on with our lives because businesses won't come here because that happened here and blah, 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 blah. That the people who are saying, no, we have to acknowledge that it did happen. This is our collective truth. And there are people fighting for those collective truths that you can't, you can't just say, oh, yeah, that did happen. Oh, yes, it was tragic, but. No, no, there is no but. And I think the arts is one way for people to examine, dismantle, take it apart, rip open the seams, and find where the truth will set them free. And that's what I see a lot of communities doing. They're grappling with the hard stuff. And they're looking for people who can come in and help them mediate that process. So, you know, it gets tricky because the Poet Laureate is supposed to be expanding the literary arts and it's supposed to be all about literature and the love of poetry. And it is for me. But I am very, very comfortable with saying 
it's the power of arts that makes a better community, mm-hmm. a better reader and writer. And if we have impoverished people who cannot read, then all of my presentations on literacy, well, not literacy, but the literary arts, who am I talking to? I'm not talking to every citizen. So I'm very, I'm very aware when I go into certain, there are counties I've never heard of. I Google them. I do the research. I want to know who they are. I was invited somewhere recently. The population in 2013 was 400 and some people. I was told before going that we are a food desert. There are no grocery stores. Bring your food. There are no hotels. We'll put you up in a bed and breakfast. You know, food is 45 minutes away. Mm -hmm. We have restaurants in town. They only do lunch and dinner. Mm -hmm. This is my state. People aren't thinking about those communities. Have you seen that new News and Observer project? It just came out maybe last week. This would be, you could add it to your, your research options. The NNO sent teams of journalists into all 100 counties, and they focused on finding a number of people from each county to speak on what it is like to be from their county and what their needs are. And the idea was to not come at it from a partisan angle, but to really have people speak to that. Mm -hmm. And there are people who talk about, we, we just need internet here. We have a healthcare. We we have a healthcare crisis here, and yes, maybe telehealth would be great for us, but we have to have internet first before we could even access services like that. And it's true that if you live in an urban area like I do now, I grew up in a more rural place, but you could live your whole life in North Carolina and not have a clue that those basic needs are not being met. And that's the same for even more fundamental utilities right. in a lot of places. Yeah. You know, I know how a lot of Port Laureate ships in other places work. And it is a lot of in and out. And and, and I've been that person myself before the Port Laureate ship. Somebody's flying me to Chicago. I get off a plane. I go to the university. I read, thank you very much, Ms. Shelton Green, they had me a paycheck, and I'm out. I don't see the community. I don't know the community. But this is different. This should not be my protocol. This should not be my norm of engagement with a community. I don't need to be the fly-by-night person who comes in, goes to the library, read a few poems, probably to like four people, and leave. So when I bump up against that as the poet laureate, I have to think about how to make my coming to that community meaningful and utilitarian. It needs to be a purpose. Thank you for listening to Arts Across NC, a podcast by and about the North Carolina Arts Council. 
This podcast was produced and hosted by me, Sandra Davidson, and it features music from the Blue Dot Sessions. If, after hearing this conversation, you're like me and you really want to go see Jackie at one of her Poet Laureate events, visit ncarts.org. You can find out if she's coming to a community near you there. You can stay on top of all kinds of North Carolina arts news by following us, the North Carolina Arts Council, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NC Arts Council. I'll be back soon with a new show.